The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So continuing our thread of the conversation, um, reflecting on delusion some more. And just as a, a reminder of how we got here, um, exploring the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness in the third foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha encourages us to get to know what's going on in our minds. And at a, at a kind of a, a general level, what's going on in our minds. So is the mind affected by greed, aversion, delusion? Is it affected by contraction or distraction? Or does it have concentrated states in it? And so the, um, the sentence uh, that we're exploring and been exploring for the past few weeks one understands the mind affected by delusion as the mind affected by delusion and the mind unaffected by delusion as a mind unaffected by delusion. Delusion is uh, in its own very, in its nature, it's, uh, it's hard to see. It's hard to recognize. And so uh, understanding the mind affected by delusion can, is sometimes not so simple. When, when, we can, when we can know the mind is affected by delusion, there is some seeing through of that delusion. And so, so that, uh, that's a, a powerful movement when we can recognize, oh, this, this mind is confused. This mind is seeing through a particular perspective or lens. And that's the perspective, that's the, how we've been exploring um, delusion in the last little while. In the first week I talked about delusion, I, I talked about three different levels or flavors of delusion. One, kind of just a disconnection where we're not aware, where awareness is not present. And when awareness is not present, our minds tend to be operating on their habitual tendencies, acting out of their own um, habits and patterns, and unaware really of, of what we're doing. And so that's a form of delusion. But delusion is not strictly about unawareness, because we can be aware of what's happening, and yet unaware of a belief or a view that's affecting how we are aware. And so that's really where delusion starts to get more insidious and harder to see because sometimes it's harder to see that we are uh, caught in a perspective or a view or a filter. That word came up last time we talked, a filter. That we're, we're seeing through a particular lens and unaware of that lens because those lenses have been so conditioned in us. Those, those filters of how we take 
in experience, so conditioned by our culture, by our experience, by how our families are. So that's, that's one level of, of, of how that, those filters work. There's a deeper level of conditioning that the last time we talked really exploring primarily um, those kinds of beliefs and views that are kind of shaped through the way we live in the world, shaped through uh, how, how we have been personally conditioned. And that includes not only our own personal experience, but also kind of the inherited conditioning of our families, of our cultures. There's a deeper level of conditioning that just comes through being born in a human body. That we seem to share particular perspectives that are confused as human beings. And so this is the, what we might call more fundamental level of delusion. We tend to take what is impermanent to be permanent. We tend to take what is unreliable as a source of lasting happiness to be reliable, to be a source of lasting happiness. And we tend to take what is not self to be self. So these forms of, of um, misunderstanding, perspectives that we live with, seem to be somewhat connected to our humanness. They, they seem to cut across cultural lines. They cut across societies. They cut across many different uh, realms. And so part of what um, seems to be useful in terms of beginning to recognize delusion as delusion, beginning to understand when the mind is affected by delusion. One thing that seems to be helpful is to begin, is to, to hear something, uh, to hear um, how these delusions work. Because when we are just living in our delusions, we don't tend to take in evidence to the contrary of those delusions. And so it's very hard to see that we're taking things to be permanent when they're impermanent, taking things to be reliable when they're reliable, taking things to be self when they're not self. It's hard to see because we're so thoroughly immersed in that view. It seems like this is just reality. And so hearing some of this and beginning to kind of be curious about our experience from these perspectives can begin to help us to recognize that what we are taking to be permanent is not permanent, is impermanent. That we are, what we are taking to be reliable is not reliable and what we are taking to be self is not self. So these distortions, these, uh, these, the, 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 
these misperceptions, these misunderstandings essentially about experience. These are, these are described in a sutta, if some of you are interested in the, the sutta references of what I, I talk about. Um, these are described in a sutta in what is called the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses of the Buddha. Um, and it's in the chapter of the fours, the, the, in the Anguttara Nikaya, they're grouped by, basically by lists. You know, each chapter has kind of, is kind of formed around um, like the chapter of the fours will have all kinds of suttas that have four things to attend to or four things to be curious about. And so this one, um, this, this teaching called distortions or misperceptions, the uh, Pali Vipalasa is found in the chapter of the fours, the 49th sutta in that, in, in Bhikkhu Bodhi's version of that. And that, because it's in the fours, you know, it's got, it, it does talk about four distortions. Uh, the three key ones are the ones I've just named. And he adds a fourth. I think it's interesting to reflect on. Um, it is that we tend to take what is unbeautiful to be beautiful. And primarily this uh, seems to refer to our human form, our bodies, the body, our bodies, the bodies of others. Um, the, there's a teaching in the first foundation of mindfulness, the first section of the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness, the foundation of the body. There's a section called contemplating the unbeautiful. And that is an encouragement for us to look at our bodies in terms of um, you know, the various parts of the body. So that we look at our body, not as kind of the entirety of it, which is how we tend to view bodies. You know, we kind of look at ourselves wrapped up in skin and we don't really think about, you know, well, what is inside this body? You know, well, it's got all these things, you know, it's got the organs, it's got the, the, um, uh, the muscles and the sinew. And, uh, you know, when we, when we don't, um, um, remember the body kind of just composed of these disparate parts, thinking about, well, okay, if we take the heart out and put it in front of us, would we call that beautiful? Well, maybe. But the, the way we tend to relate to our bodies is not, um, not through really understanding this kind of, uh, just this collection of physical parts that is basically basically meat. I, I had the privilege at one point to uh, go to an anatomy lab and see some cadavers. And that was the first thing that struck me. It was an odd kind of experience. You know, they, uh, they took the bodies out of the bags and they had been partly dissected so we could see the, the muscle. We could Go, we could touch the organs inside the body. They'd been preserved so that we could do that. We could, you know, go into the, the cavity and, and kind of touch the various parts. And, and my experience was this is meat. 
you know, it, it didn't, it, it was, it was an odd experience, you know, look, I could look at the face of the person and know this was a person, but I certainly wouldn't look at that body laid out and think this is uh, desirable. You know, I think that's what the, that's what the beauty piece is pointing to. You know, we can understand it as beautiful in a way in terms of understanding it as a, an amazing, uh, you know, kind of evolution that has created this human form and the way all the parts work together. There's some way in which we can appreciate that. I don't think that's what he's, he's talking about when he says, you know, we tend to take the body as beautiful. You know, I think he's taking it as, you know, he's pointing to the way we tend to forget that this is a collection of parts and, and simply uh, you know, desire bodies. We want to create our body to be desirable for others. We want to uh, uh, have other, other experiences with other bodies for that. I think this is connected in some ways to the, you know, I was, I was reflecting this, this feels like it's related to the uh, reliability piece in a way, but it's also connected to the, you know, we're taking the body to be permanent. It kind of cuts across these in a way, these three, the impermanent, the unreliable, the not self. So when I speak about these distortions, I often just, I just come to these key three distortions. What is, we take what is impermanent to be permanent, unreliable to be reliable, what is not self to be self. When we, um, these these three are often talked about in, in the Buddha's description of what we understand in terms of freedom. These are the insights that free the mind. When we understand all experience, all conditioned experience is impermanent. All conditioned experience is unreliable. All experience is not self. That's a kind of a famous quote from Buddha. All conditioned experience is impermanent. All conditioned experience is unreliable. All experience is not self. There's something to unpack there, which I'll defer to a later time. Um, but those that those understandings, in in terms of the experience that we have, when we understand those, then that nature of experience, we we. Uh, the clinging and the craving around experience tends to release. And so it is the misunderstanding that leads to the craving and clinging. The taking what is impermanent to be permanent tends to lead the mind towards craving that thing, towards thinking there's something useful about landing on it, about having it. It's thought potentially to be desirable, that second, that second truth, that second characteristic. And we tend to take things to be I, to be, be, to be me, to be mine. 
So we tend to crave and cling to experience when we take it to be permanent, reliable, and self. And the path to understanding, the path to freedom lies in the uh, recognizing how we have mistaken or misunderstood experience to be permanent, to be reliable, to be self. And so we don't simply kind of just suddenly one day wake up and say, oh, things are impermanent or wow, things are not self. The way that we explore this is by noticing what we are taking to be permanent. What are we taking to be reliable? What are we counting on for our happiness? And curiosity about it. What am I taking to be permanent, stable, stable, solid? Is it really permanent, stable, solid? Look at it, observe it. Over time, sometimes it takes. Look at what we're taking to be reliable. Is it really reliable? And what are we taking to be self? So we'll explore these, um, these three. I think we'll probably unpack them over the coming, over the coming um, sessions that we have together. The piece I wanted to go into today is a, an aspect of the teaching that's found in that sutta. Yangudara 4.49, that talks about these distortions. It brings in um, that not only do we have these distortions, and we tend to take what is impermanent to be permanent, but we have these distortions at different levels in our mind. It it talks about that there's a distortion at the level of perception, how we take in experience. There's a distortion at the level of thinking, how we think about it. And there's a distortion at the level of belief. And to me, these are like, they're kind of, they're, it's it's, it's interesting the way they function. Um, the distortion at the level of perspective is very much connected with the most basic uh, functions of our human body, how we p- perceive things, how we take things in. And then, you know, coming up a little bit to a higher cognitive realm, then we start thinking about that experience. And that thinking is often, you know, connected with how we feel about it too. You know, what the, so there's, there's thoughts about what we, what we experience. And then, at, a, at an, a kind of a, a different level of cognitive functioning are the beliefs that we form. And so an example of this, the classic example in the suttas talks about how, um, how you might walk into a room or into a, you know, in this case, maybe into a barn or something or, you know, someplace outside, you know, going into a shed outside I've got this new shed that I put outside and um, you know if you walk into that shed and it's a little bit dim and you see a coiled form there might be an immediate kind of kind of perception that that coiled form is a snake 
So that's, you know, and, and it may be that in the next moment you realize, oh, it's not a snake, it's a hose. You know, you, you can see that, that the mind misperceived it. And so this, 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 this most basic level of misperception is also the easiest to see through. It's the easiest to, you know, when we get, uh, you know, a better view on something, we can often recognize, oh, I mistook that. I mistook that for something it wasn't. So I perceived it incorrectly. The next level is when we, you know, it's not only that we, um, we perceive it as a snake. So just that kind of immediate kind of um, process of our eye seeing a form and then interpreting it as snake. You know, this does take, history, it takes knowing what a snake is, all of that. But then we, we start thinking about it, you know, it's like, oh, that's a snake. And this is what snakes do. And this is how they work. And maybe we walk away from it and telling somebody, oh, there's a snake in there. You know, so, so there's the, the kind of like, we, we start thinking about it as a snake. That is um, kind of a little bit more hmm, solidified in a way. So we have, t- it's, it's gone from the level of just like, you know, kind of the bare perception into our, our field of thinking. We're thinking, we think it's a snake. That gets a little harder to, uh, to undo. And then there is the next level, the level of view. And so if with the, with the perception of it as, or with the thought of it as snake, you know, we might go and tell somebody, oh, there's a snake in there. And somebody will go, well, let's go see, you know, it's like, you know, let, let, let's check it out. I'm not so sure. I, I know there was a, there was a hose in there. Let's go see if it actually was a snake. And, and so, you know, somebody else might, might go in there with us and then, and then say, no, no, that's a, that's a hose. And so that can help to undo our, uh, our kind of perspective or our, our misperception of the third level, the, the, the view, when, the, when there's a view that gets formed, a belief essentially, that's, that's one where it gets much harder to, um, gets much harder to uh, undo. You know, when we start believing that that coiled form is a snake, it gets much harder for others to kind of talk us out of it, essentially. So this is, this is the misperception in terms of you. So an example of this, you know, how, how view affects us, you know, when view affects us. So, so we have these three levels of kind of distortion, of misperception. And, uh, you know, when we've got a kind of a, a distortion around view, when we've picked something up and kind of reified it, I think of the distortion of view as being a reification of we have seen something and we've interpreted it to be that. And it's going to be really hard for somebody else to say, no, that was not a snake. You know, that was, that was a hose. It's, that's going to be harder for us to, uh, to, to kind of see through that. So what tends to happen with these distortions is that they feed each other. 
So when we have a view, that view then tends to inform how we take in subsequent information. How we subsequently perceive things is shaped by those views. And so these distortions build on each other. It's kind of humbling to see that, how these distortions build on each other. So an example of um, this, I've, I've told this story a number of times. I don't remember if I've told it recently. So forgive me if I told it like two weeks ago, <laughs> uh, but it kind of really de demonstrates these levels, these three, three levels of perception. So I'll tell the story from that perspective. And this, this is a story that um, when I was in Burma, uh, meditating in the monastery in Burma, um, I, you know, was hearing all kinds of sounds through the day, you know, it's like very noisy there, some you know, like sounds from the village, you know, loudspeakers and things like that. And there was just this continual stream of noise that was coming. Um, and pretty much regularly each time, at the same time each day, I started hearing this, this odd squealing noise. And uh, to me, you know, the, the perception of that odd squealing noise was that this was a pig. There was a pig squealing in the village just on the other side of, the, of the, the wall, the monastery wall. So that was the perception, you know, the sound, the squealing sound, that was a pig. And, you know, this, this is like based on my experience, you know, that's how perception works. You know, we get kind of a filing cabinet of experiences. I'd heard squealing pigs and like, okay, this squealing sound, this, this is a pig. Um, so that, I, that, was, that was a perception. You know, that was that was the perception that was going on. Um, and then my mind started to think about it as a pig and what pigs doing and and why the pig might be squealing like this. So that's the thinking about that's the next level of of perception of of what happens with a perception. We have a perception and we start thinking about it. So I was thinking about this pig and the sound and the, the sound sounded a little bit distressed to me. And so uh, the interpretation I put on this, the view that arose on this third level of what happens with perception uh, leading to thought, leading to view. Uh, the view that I put on this is that this, that the pig's, that there was a regular event going on each day where pigs were being slaughtered. There was essentially a butcher shop on the other side of the monastery wall and so that the pigs were being slaughtered. So this was a view. Now I knew that I did not know whether this is what was happening. So I knew that this was a view. I was holding it somewhat lightly and yet still there was a believing in it. And that believing you know, led to a feeling of compassion every time I heard the squealing. I felt compassion. Some days through this process, at one point, instead of being in my room at that time of day, I decided to take a walk. I was doing a walking practice. And while I was walking, I noticed these bats flying around. And the bats were squealing. The squealing sound that I'd been hearing 
hadn't been a pig. And so in that moment, there was this kind of like the falling apart of that, that whole thing. You know, the, the idea that it was a pig, you know, that just punctured everything. So in this case, the, the th- it, was, it was all based on a, um, you know, it was all based on the misperception that it was a pig. You know, I, I, I had been holding the view about, you know, this pig, the pigs are getting slaughtered. That was held pretty lightly because I knew that I didn't know that. And so it was a pretty easy kind of thing to, to fall apart for me. And it was, it was stunning, actually, to see also how the view that the pigs were being slaughtered. It was like, these are pat- bat squealing. You know, there's, there's like, there's no need for compassion. There's nothing to be, you know, it's like, this is not, this is not relevant here. You know, so the compassion part fell apart. The thoughts about what the pig might be doing fell apart because it was all kind of based on that misperception and the mind wasn't holding to the thoughts and the views very tightly. So it was pretty easy for it to fall apart. Now, if the mind had been holding more tightly to it, had reified it as this is what's happening, you know, potentially I could have like gone to the, to the, the abbot of the monastery and said, you know, there are pigs being slaughtered next door and we really shouldn't have this so close to the monastery. Can we talk to them? Can we talk to them? And, and in that kind of a situation, what might've happened is that when I saw the bats squealing, the mind would have kind of separated or kept a distance or kept a kind of compartment around this whole story and, and not connected the squealing sound to what I thought was pigs. I was like, well, these are bats squealing, but I know what happens when I'm in my room is pig squealing and that that's what's happening. So when we reify around a view, it gets much harder to see through those mistaken perceptions. So... um, these three distortions or these three levels kind of come into play around the three basic areas around we take things to be permanent, we take things to be reliable, we take things to be self. When we, and the one around self, I think, is the easiest one to point to this about um, how we, um, you know, having the view that something is self is one of the hardest things to see through, uh, you know, to, to kind of decondition that view. It's easier in some ways when we're taking something to be reliable. You know, the Buddha has a very clear instruction about this. It's like, okay, see how long that, that satisfaction lasts when you get the thing that you want, you know, when you get that kind of thing that feels reliable, how long does the satisfaction actually last? You know, so, so you begin to recognize that what we take to be reliable as a form of lasting happiness, well, you know, our minds tend to forget, you know, that uh, that thing has, has kind of, we, it's lost our attention. And, and we, um, um, we seem to forget that, like our mind has moved on to something else. And so we're not as aware when the satisfaction of something we've taken to be reliable, when that ends. And so, you know, kind of pointing to that, you know, what is, 
what is reliable? The Buddha has a whole teaching on that that I'll unpack maybe in a, in a few weeks. Um, with, with self, with taking something to be self, you know, it's really, it's really hard to, to see through it. You know, it's like there's evidence all over the place for this truth or this, you know, the kind of the, the nature of experience is not self. There's evidence everywhere for that. But we don't interpret that experience as evidence for not self. We kind of package that kind of evidence into kind of more evidence for self, in a sen- essentially. So a simple example, when you sit down to meditate, I mean, every time you meditate, this truth of not self gets revealed. When you sit down to meditate, if, you, if you've kind of got the sense of, okay, I'm going to be attentive to the present moment. You know, I'm going to watch what's happening moment after moment. And uh, the mind wanders. Now, who did that? Did you decide I'm going to stop being aware and make the mind wander? Probably not. It happened based on causes and conditions. But we don't tend to interpret that as an evidence for not-self. We tend to interpret it as I um, needed to be thinking or I started thinking about this. You know, So we, we, we take up a self around what happened. When we return from the mind wandering, you know, that moment when mindfulness returns, who did that? That one is kind of even more amazing in some ways. Who, who, who did that one? Who? It, again, it just happened. And in that moment, you know, what we often do is berate ourselves. My mind was wandering. I was doing that. I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. I'm bad. I'm wrong. My meditation is bad. I'm a terrible meditator. We pick up that as evidence for self as opposed to understanding it for really, it's pointing out this, this nature of mind, the nature of experience as not self. So that's probably enough for me for now. And uh, we can go into more depth on each of these three areas and how to work with them. Uh, in the coming weeks, but I want to just hear from you, you know, what what kind of, what what do these reflections uh, spur in you? This is Yang Kui. Yeah, Yang Kui. I can share a couple, a comment, um, and then maybe a question. One comment is, um, um, you know, I'm a therapist and a caregiver mother. And so often in the past, I want to say this is transformation, but in the past, whenever there's a phone call, uh, ringing, like I automatically think somebody needs help. Somebody needs something and that there's a certain sort of energy and habit of somebody needs help kind of thing. And it's, I think was trained from very young as an immigrant to being a young parent to my parents, you know, just needing to be helper. And so, um, 
and I was aware of it, but it was really hard to get rid of it. I just like, you know, so there's always constant, like somebody's in crisis, kind of a th- emotion that arises in me to help out. And then I'm just um, um, come, sort of putting that next to having practice with Thich Nhat Hanh, where when there's a phone call, you hear the, the ring of, the, of the, the telephone, you pause and breathe and smile. <laughs> so it's like a mindfulness spell. So like having practicing this for so many years now that I, I have such a neutral right now I realize I'm still a therapist I'm still a mother I'm still a daughter and things come up but I don't have that sort of automatic you know when you talk about the compassion the feeling the concept is so natural given our perception that ingrained sense of self so I can't control but it doesn't arise anymore that sense of somebody's in crisis it's like oh I'll just pause and wait for breathe and then I'll answer the phone or maybe I'll wait later on to answer this email that there's not that sense anymore so I thought that was sort of interesting to contrast those two yeah Um, and that that, that, and that's a great example of how you know views are shaped they're not just shaped well they're not they can be shaped very quickly. Views can be shaped really quickly. It's kind of amazing how fast a view can be shaped, but they tend to be shaped over time. And so they, they're reinforced, you know, and it's like in that situation, you know, what you're describing um, is kind of like it's, it, that view gets reinforced each time you pick up the phone and there is something to worry about or something to do or somebody to help. But it's, it's like this is that example of the mind not seeing the uh, the way things actually are because you're not taking in the fact that maybe, you know, nine times out of 10, it's not that when the phone rings. But that's what the mindfulness helps to undermine, right? That, that's what the mindfulness actually helps us to see is like, oh, I'm expecting this. There's, a, there's the charge. We feel the charge. And then, but what's actually here? It's not that. It's not that experience. It's not that um, that situation. And so that begins to allow the the mind to to kind of recognize that this this conditioning has been kind of preferential, essentially, towards that assumption of something to to something to 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 take care of or somebody needs help. So yeah, the mindfulness is really the key. Um, support for beginning to undermine these uh, misperceptions. But we have to, we have to really hold it, you know, because it is so strong, as you said, it, it wasn't, it probably took quite a long time of that practice before you began to recognize, oh, I'm not doing that anymore. You know, so, so it it can take a long time. So, um, you know, it's not something that just like one time seeing through it, will do because those patterns are so deeply ingrained. So the continued repeating of, of seeing it now. So for me, that, that one time seeing, Oh, these are bats. That was enough because the view hadn't hardened. It hadn't really gotten so shaped. Um, But there's so many other things in my life where the view is like, Oh yeah, I'm seeing through that view again. Okay. And, And that's where we can start to see, Oh, this is delusion at work. So you're you're recognizing not not that you're, not that it's happening now, but you're recognizing. Okay, breathe. There's some activation here. That's an opportunity for knowing. Well, this is interpretation based on a view. You know that 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 old habit, that old pattern, 
that is an interpretation based on a view. This is delusion at work that I believe that is going to be somebody who needs help. You know, so, so that's a way that we can start to actually recognize, oh, this is delusion in the mind. This is the mind affected by delusion, to come back to that uh, sentence from the Satipatthana. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's a great example. Thanks. Bruce. Okay, Andrea, I've got two things. First, I understand your um, story about human bodies as beef, but can we agree that everyone on this call is at least 100% class A, grade A <laughs> beef? I think everyone, everyone in the world has that, you know. Okay, I'll just go for this call. Okay. <laughs> Second, um, I'm taking this really interesting uh, class uh, through Gaia House on the inner critic. And I'm wondering if that, if the inner critic, which we're exploring over the course of uh, six weeks, I think it is, is a kind of um, view as well, or how the inner critic relates to being uh, one of the delusions. I think it's connected to the delusion of self. You know, so it, if you're, you know, inner, if you're criticizing internally, you know, I'm no good, I'm bad, I'm wrong, you know, kind of that self-negativity, that is holding a view of what the self is, what it, what it should be, perhaps, you know, holding up some idea of what it should be and measuring ourselves based on that should you know, so it's creating a view. This this one I'm really familiar with, uh, the self-negativity, you know, the, the self-hatred, beginning to see that that self-hatred is a view conditioned based on many, many years of conditioning, um, you know, seeing that, uh, and then, you know, how that shapes self-criticism, you know, that, that, I'm a bad person. I can't do things right. I'm no good. Uh, I'm a failure. All of those self-critical things were shaped based on that self-view. You know that that this is how I should be. You know, and, and that that's actually a way that I explore uh, in, in terms of the, the the critic. You know, the self-judgment, the self-judgment, looking at um, you know that that kind of that sense of I'm supposed to be X, I'm supposed to be this ideal. You know, it's like we, we can't never come to uh, always fulfill that. And what I began to see is like the holding of that self, which I thought, you know, when I got there, when I thought, oh, yes, I'm doing well, that felt really good. And I thought that, you know, I, what I was supposed to get rid of or that was supposed to be transcended was those times when I thought I wasn't feeling good. But, you know, but what we, what we really have to recognize is that holding to that ideal is the setup. So, you know, to, to, to recognize that actually has to be let go of. You know, so there's the, you know, oh, I'm, I'm successful. I'm doing well. Sometimes there's a kind of a flip side to the self-critic that also needs to be seen. Um, that one's scary to see. 
you know, because you recognize, oh, that's impermanent. <laughs> and we don't want it to be impermanent. Yeah, Thanks. so I, I think it's connected to the to the view of self. <laughs>